welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by a new guest in our critic series, Paul Cantor, America's eminent Shakespearean and all-around pop culture devotee. Sir, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Please introduce yourself for our audience and tell us about your upcoming work on movies. Okay, I'm a professor of English at the University of Virginia, and much of my work has been on Shakespeare. But about 15 years ago, I got interested in writing about popular culture. I wrote a book called Gillian Unbound, Pop Culture of the Age of Globalization. Then a book, The Invisible Hand in Popular Culture, Liberty versus Authority in American Film and Television. And I've just finished a new book called Pop Culture and the Dark Side of the American Dream, Con Men, Gangsters, Drug Lords, and Zombies. And it isn't restricted to movies. I actually begin uh, with Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. I then have a chapter on W.C. Fields and his movies, uh, then a chapter on Godfather 1 and 2, uh, then a chapter on uh, the TV series Breaking Bad, and finally a chapter on the TV series Walking Dead. Uh, and I start from the paradox in the book that all the, although the American dream is very real and and a very positive thing. Uh, Since the beginning, it's been haunted uh, by a kind of nightmare, other side, so that, uh, for example, American dream uh, is the idea of the entrepreneur, the get rich uh, quick scheme, and yet that's always been haunted by the idea of the con man. Uh, and then I go on to show how um, in the Godfather films, the, the gangster is a variant of the American immigrant as, a, as an example of the American dream. So I basically go through and show how uh, with a little change, what looks positive can turn out very negative. And I think the Godfather films are a great example of that. So when does this book come out, sir? Oh, we're thinking March 2019. Uh, it's at the typesetting point now. I'm waiting to receive page proofs. Spring 2019 is a reasonable expectation. Well, then I'm sure we will have a chance at that point to do another conversation and introduce it all over again. I am certainly looking forward to it. I admire your work on popular culture and I'm especially pleased with pieces you've written for the press on W.C. Fields. America's populist anti-Puritan, so to speak. Yes, that's a good way of characterizing him. So let us get to Francis Ford Coppola. How did you run into The Godfather? How did you come to think about it as an epitome, as you put it, that it's the all-American dream gone really, really dark all of a sudden? Yeah, well, it is. It's difficult to avoid The Godfather. Many people like me think the two films are the greatest films ever made, and certainly they've been a huge success. I will say it was not in the original planning of the book. Uh, as it happened, I was putting together uh, the book out of some things I'd already written, and I knew I wanted to add a add a Breaking Bad chapter. And at one point, I realized there was an enormous hole in the book, and that is the Godfather movies. That if you're talking about a portrayal of the dark side of the American dream, uh, those films are as important as anything. So that the last thing I actually wrote for the book was a very long chapter on the Godfather films. And uh, I do think they're great films just as films, but I think what really gives them depth is they portray a very important aspect of the American experience, and that is the immigrant experience. In some ways, the film seems to be dealing with something very special uh, with 
the mobsters and the mafia, uh, and yet in many ways it manages to portray uh, those stories as typically American. I mean, so many Americans are immigrants. Uh, so many Americans essentially encounter the very problems that the Corleones do. How do you uh, adapt to a new land? How do you uh, prosper in it? Uh, and again, although the story is in some ways very special, very particular, it has all sorts of resonances. I just think of the uh, use of the image of the Statue of Liberty in the which comes up at, at several important points and makes it a very representative American story. So I realize this book would not have been complete without a chapter on Godfather 1 and 2. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. And you just put me in mind of Frank Capra, who said that as they were traveling when he was a child from Italy, his father woke him up and brought him up on deck just for that, to see the Statue of Liberty. Yes, I can imagine how uh, moving that must have been at the time. Uh, I've only seen the Statue of Liberty from the Staten Island Ferry. I've never otherwise taken a boat into New York Harbor. Yeah, that's uh, exactly. It's the view from the other side. What does America look like for people who are coming here? And this offers storytellers of the class of Francis Ford Coppola this opportunity to show you America from the outside, to show you America as it appears to newcomers, to immigrants, to people who are faced with the question of Americanization. How do you fit in? Yes, that's exactly what I concentrate on the essay. And in particular, I concentrate on America as the land of modernization. And I think the both films uh, together turn on the contrast between a traditional European uh, community represented by the village of Corleone and modern America, which eventually is epitomized in Las Vegas. Uh, I know the films mainly take place in New York, but New York is presented as a halfway spot uh, between Italy and America and between the 19th century past and a modernized world. Uh, so that it, it's very interesting in the films uh, that the Corleones uh, have not completed their journey until they move to Las Vegas. And I make the point this is a very American matter of go west, young man. Yes, Exactly. The, the great theme of America has been moving west. And in some ways, the film shows that New York is Little Italy. Uh, it's only half the way between Italy and America, and people are still speaking Italian in the New York of the film. Uh, and uh, there's a good deal of Corleone left in that little Italy neighborhood that we see, which is still a world of traditional ties where people know each other. And uh, it's really interesting how uh, it's only in Las Vegas that the Corleones complete their Americanization, which is their complete removal from their roots in Italy. And Coppola portrays that brilliantly with the opening of both films. In one, we open with an Italian wedding 
uh, where people are still speaking Italian, uh, they're eating Italian food, drinking Italian wine, they're doing Italian dances. It's a very traditional community where Vito Corleone is playing a traditional role as a kind of patron of people. And that's very strongly contrasted with the uh, first communion party for little Anthony at the beginning of Godfather 2, where, uh, uh, in fact, Frankie Pentagonally shows up from New York and can't understand. None of the musicians in the uh, band are Italian. They can't play an Italian tarantella. The food, you know, they're not serving uh, Italian food. Uh, and it really shows how the uh, Corleone family does not fully become American until they're completely uprooted from the European roots. Uh, and the film presents that as something deeply problematic. Indeed, there's a real question of how much of the family is left uh, by the opening of Godfather 2. Of course, Michael has killed off so many family members at that point that there's a reason for that. Uh, but I, I think Cor uh, Coppola has said that he deliberately set out to create this can contrast in the opening of the, t uh, the two films. Yes. And uh, to speak very briefly of the structure of the two movies, they have a lovely inverse parallelism that shows Coppola's intentions. The first Godfather shows you the youth of Michael and the old age of Don Vito. The second one does the reverse, the old age of Michael and the youth of Don Vito, and so brings up even more forcefully the conflict between the generations. We know from the first movie that Don Vito wanted Michael to be his American kid, to be respectable, to bring the family into respectability, which means some kind of Americanization. And we know also from the opening scene of the first Godfather movie that Michael himself says that, that that's my family, Kay, they're the mobsters, they're the murderers, that's not me. Now, it turns out that he's also a mobster and a murderer, but he turns into an American version of one. It turns out that Don Vito really got what he wanted, if not in the way he wanted it. Michael really is far more American than his father was. Absolutely. And uh, we see the transition at the peace meeting of the five families, which is presented as a corporate board meeting. But it's really the last uh, gasp of Don Vito. After that, he essentially goes into retirement. His last act is to convert the mafia uh, into uh, uh, an American corporation. And it turns out Michael is better at running that sort of outfit uh, than Vito was. Vito, uh, the, the Vito is a kind of compromise between the old world and the new. Uh, and you see it in his attitude towards drugs, that he, he's the one who doesn't want the mafia to go into drug dealing. Um, Michael ultimately has no problem with that. Uh, and indeed, you see him uh, increasingly uh, uh, putting business above family in a way that Vito resisted. Yes, that's a very good point, that The Godfather Part 1 shows us a conflict within the Mafia, and it's between Don Vito, who really believes in nobility. This, in Godfather Part 2, is made far more problematic because we're first given the idea that Don Vito comes from Sicily, and he has brought Sicily with him. That's what he believes, that's what he treasures, that's what he's trying to reinstitute. But in the second movie, we'll learn that actually Sicily was hell on earth for him. His whole family slaughtered, he had to run away to live, 
So you wonder, why the hell did he ever want to bring that back all over again? But, <laughs> but in some strange way he did. He just thought the problem was the wrong guy was done. Yeah, uh, that's really the way I begin my essay, by uh, setting up the distinction between the village and the extended community. There's a fancy German term for this, the contrast between Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft. Uh, that is, what we see in Corleone is uh, a small traditional community where everyone knows everyone else, where people take care of each other, but the downside of that is it's corrupt. Uh, you can't escape it. It's, a, as you say, a hellish life. We see in scenes after World War II uh, how the uh, Sicilians are asking American GIs to take them to America. Uh, and so the film contrasts this small, narrow community uh, where people don't have many opportunities with wide open America, the whole notion of the American dream, uh, that you're not tied to your uh, local origins. But on the other hand, we see the downside of that, which is the impersonality, the fact that people aren't taken care of. And the film offers a kind of tragic choice in that sense that you, you can have community, but it will be stifling uh, and, and can easily turn corrupt. Uh, when you seek this larger world, uh, many opportunities open up, but it's very easy to drift into crime uh, and uh, no one's there to help you. Uh, it really shows uh, you know the 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 good side of America and the dark side of America. That's why it's so important to my new book. Yeah, and the the other side of the conflict within the mafia is Solozzo, who is a fairly Machiavellian character, and Michael is sort of in between his father and this other guy. The way he finally wins, the way he installs his own rule, really means accepting the principles of his enemy and abandoning the way of his own father, who thought that the way for immigrants who are weak, they're poor, they don't have connections, they don't know the language, they don't know the American ways, the way for them to organize is to reconstitute at some level the familiar things from the old world. Whereas Solozzo says we gotta put all that behind, we gotta do business in a new way. And the difference there is signified by the cops, right? The, the Don Vito draws a line at that. You don't touch cops or judges, you leave the Americans to their own way. But Solozzo and Michael are willing to step beyond that and because in a way they already are American and you can't kill cops in America actually. Yeah, you know, it's the relentless logic of the film is the continuing Americanization and the modernization of the characters, uh, the, the, their continuing assimilation into America. And normally we think of that as a good thing, but the film I think is so powerful and so tragic because it does portray how that uh, can, can go wrong. And again, the logic of it in the films is uh, the increasing scope of the mafia. I mean, when, when Don Vito begins, when we see his early days in Little Italy in New York, he's a petty thief operating on a very local level. By the end of the film, uh, you know, first the mafia goes national when they have that syndicate meeting under uh, Don Barsini's patronage. But by Godfather, Father too, uh, the mob is going international. It's now involved in Cuba, and indeed the great hope is to find another nation that will be even more tolerant of its activities than, than America has been.
Uh, and so uh, uh, it's really the geographic scope of the movies is quite extraordinary. People often refer to the films as epic, and I think they genuinely are because it's one reason they're so great is the historical sweep from the 19th century to the mid-20th century. And really this geographic sweep, which takes us from the village to the nation to the international scene, it's so representative of American experience, even though it comes at it from this uh, different angle. Yes, that is true. Coppola obviously had the ambition to tell the story of the American destiny, and in the figure of the immigrant, he does repeat American history. You get to New York first, but then you go out west, and then, of course, you go international. America had its own Cuban adventure in the Spanish War, of course. Yes, uh, and there there are all these hints in the film of the larger uh, geopolitics uh, of it. I mean, the fact that it does bring up Castro and the threat of communism. In fact, in a deleted scene from part two, even in Sicily, uh, there's a glimpse of communists marching under a red banner. Uh, and indeed, it, it, the, the issue of communism uh, comes up again at the uh, a board meeting, uh, uh, Don Barcini at one point says, yeah, of course you'll get a share. We are not communists. And it, it really it, it manages to correlate these individual family stories with the larger uh, history of America during this period. And as you said, at the private level, that means that for better and for worse, family kind of breaks down, multi-generational family breaks down, and then even the nuclear family breaks down, and you end up with a tragic individualism. After all, the end of Godfather Part Two is Michael Corleone all alone. Absolutely. Dawn over nobody left. Yeah, because again, that's an aspect of this contrast. In the village, the family is all important. Uh, it's all you have. The only thing that protects uh, little Vito Andolini is his relatives who, who get him out of uh, Corleone. And certainly the, at the Italian wedding, uh, everything is family, and Vito won't allow the photos to be taken until Michael is in the picture. Again, that's strongly contrasted with the party at the opening of Godfather where at this point, Michael's alienated from his wife, Connie is divorced, Fredo is sleeping around. The family has clearly broken down at that point, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's seen as the great loss that uh, in embracing this American dream, you lose touch with the old family values that had, had sustained uh, people. But again, those family values are linked up with a code of vendetta, of vengeance that has been destroying people. When Michael Corleone uh, in Godfather 1 comes to Corleone, he says, where are, all, where are all the young men? And someone just says, vendetta. And you, you see what's been destructive there. The film doesn't have any simple answers. It, for example, it doesn't say that family is the answer. Family can be a very destructive force in the film. On the other hand, it can be a very positive force, and you see what's missing when the family structure breaks down, and that's the great price uh, Michael pays for his success in American terms. Yes, you're right. In America, we believe both in commerce and in family values, and in The Godfather, the genius of the tragedy is to show that they can become enemies, 
and Michael can learn in the name of commerce to betray his family so that the business works. And on the other hand, that the, the, the family is also itself sort of against the life of business. Uh, Kay takes the kids away. Yes, I mean, that's one of the central ideas in my book, that the, the American dream at its best uh, thinks we can have it all. And so that, for example, uh, you can uh, be successful in business and have a good family as well. And I must say, I mean, I don't simply dismiss the American dream in this book. I think it's been very real for many people. Uh, and, you know, I, uh, I come ultimately from immigrant families, and, and we, you know, our family's been pretty successful and since have nothing to complain about in America. Uh, and it is for, you know, it's one of the sort of the great exemplar of the American dream is a uh, traditionally a man uh, goes to work, is successful financially, and supports his family. Even the family business is one of the central images of the American dream, the idea that you combine family and business in a family business, and their example. I mean, uh, Jenko Olive Oil in the film is an example of family business. But, again, the reason this film is so profound, in my opinion, is it shows that although that may be an ideal and maybe sometimes even a reality, uh, it, uh, uh, it, it's fraught with danger because uh, sometimes business gets in the way of the family, sometimes the family gets in the way of business, uh, 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 and, and that's what leads to the tragedy uh, in both films, really. Yeah. It's true that we start with the Jenko Oil Company. There's old world stuff brought to the new world and it's working out even better. America is an improvement on Europe in this sense. But it's also true that you end up with the model of business that is Las Vegas. Yes. That's surely anti-family. That's Sin City. Yes, and it, it works out so perfectly because, uh, uh, you know, Sicily, Corleone, that's the place of home, home for family. Las Vegas, all you see is hotels in the movie, and there's a certain truth to that, uh, that nobody lives in Las Vegas in the film. It becomes the ultimate symbol of America as mobility. One of the great contrasts in the film is in the village you're stuck. You're not mobile. Uh, you know, you, <laughs> you're walking uh, through the countryside, or at best, you're on the back of a donkey. Uh, but Las Vegas, you fly into it, and it's that great image of mobile uh, uh, America, and it's, it's a playground. Uh, and again, it's the opposite. In Corleone, everybody knows what's going on. Uh, Don Ciccio can send out the word, where's the Andalini boy? You gotta tell me where it is. But Las Vegas is the place uh, where what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And when the mob sets up Senator Geary for that murder, I mean, uh, Tom Hagen is able to ensure him, you know, this stops here. We've covered this up. Uh, and so, really, again, you see this difference between a world, a personal world, and a world of total impersonality. Uh, and I, th I mean, it's it's obvious that Las Vegas is connected to the history of the, the mob, but uh, Coppola does a brilliant job of uh, portraying, you know, uh, giving that this larger symbolic uh, value of Vegas as kind of the distillation of what America stands for. 
yeah, you see this move from a world where there are homes, but there is no work to do, to the new world, to New York, where homes and families can have family businesses and work there is in the service of family, but it turns out it doesn't work so easily. There are all these legal complications, there are all these political problems, and the solution to move out west turns out ultimately to mean that from now on family, if at all, is in the service of work. Yes, and and again, the, the gambling is legal in Las Vegas. Uh, I do a lot in the in the essay with this issue of whether something uh, is uh, wrong, uh, whether something is illegal because it's wrong, or whether it's simply wrong because it's illegal. Because prohibition is a potent image, uh, an issue in the film. I, I begin the uh, essay with a wonderful epigraph from no less than Frank Sinatra, where he really uh, uh, criticizes prohibition as, as directed against Italian Americans. Americans, uh, because they were already so well established in the wine industry in America. And it's an interesting point that at one moment, Italian Americans are off in Napa and Sonoma, and they're contributing to the development of the American wine industry. And the next thing, the rug is pulled out from under them. Their, their activity is now I illegal. And I think the film makes a great deal of the, the fact that uh, immigrants uh, were not treated fairly in America in many ways. Uh, they they were they suffered from prejudice. You see that in the prejudice of the Irish policeman McCluskey against Michael as an Italian. Uh, uh, and prohibition in many ways was directed towards immigrants. They were thought of as drinking too much and creating problems. And so in that sense, uh, it gives Vito more stature. Uh, in in the film, because in as he himself says, uh, what he's doing most Americans approve of, and that's where he draws the line with drugs. In fact, uh, which by the way is uh, uh, a distortion of history. In fact, it turns out the the mob was involved in drugs already in the 1930s. But I think Coppola was deliberately trying to set up the idea that in some ways Vito is forced into this. He's suffering so many injustices. He has so few opportunities that he has to seize upon one area where uh, he uh, can achieve something on his own. And then, of course, this issue that, you know, gambling's illegal uh, only in states where it's illegal. And in fact, uh, you know, as I point out in the book now, we have so many states that have lotteries where their states are profiting from gambling. Uh, and so that's the attraction of Las Vegas uh, in the film, and indeed why uh, the, the, the mob uh, moved out there. Yeah, and we see with, uh, as, as you said about Sinatra, and uh, in, in this case with uh, Coppola's story, he improves on history, because indeed, as we know from Aristotle, poetry is more philosophical than history. If you have to correct exactly. the record a little, it does clarify tremendously the matter. And uh, one of our recent podcasts was on the great Brian De Palma, David Mamet uh, movie, The Untouchables, where it is made very explicit that prohibition is the work of Puritan Protestants against Irishmen and Italians who are Catholic. 
And of course, we know from the history of the mafia that so fascinated Protestant America, most of the great mob guys or the terrible mob guys, depending on how you think about them, were Irish, Italian or Jewish. Yes. Yes, and and the Hyman Roth figure is so fascinating, based on Meyer Lansky uh, in uh, Godfather Two. Uh, here's, you know, I did some research on this. I read up on the mafia. Here's a very interesting angle: uh, Calavita Oil Comp uh, Olive Oil is Jenko Olive Oil. Yep. The, that that is to say, one of the the models for Vito Corleone was Joe Perfacci. Uh, I think he was with the Colombo family, uh, uh, and he was known as the Olive Oil King. He was in the olive oil business with his connection with Sicily. Uh, now his uh, part of his family went legitimate. Uh, in some ways, Michael Corleone's dream uh, was not simply a dream. Uh, I think his name is Robert Profaci, uh founded uh, Calavita Oil Comp uh, Olive Oil, I think, in the 1970s, and and uh, that side of the family uh, went completely legitimate. So that the I think the grandchildren of Joseph Profaci are Joseph Profaci and uh, uh, Robert Profaci Jr. They're quite respected uh, businessmen uh, and uh, you know, I've read articles about them that even the FBI says they're, they're, they're legitimate, they have no ties uh, uh, with the, the mafia and so in some ways you know what, what seems in the film like a pipe dream of Michael Corleone oh we can become legitimate in fact it did happen uh, in in some cases, uh, and in this very prominent one where it comes out of the Profaci uh, family, uh, so it's it was fun actually reading up on the on the history again. Meyer Lansky is a really fascinating uh, uh, figure, uh, and so uh, the Coppola had a lot, of, uh, and I should say Mario Puzo because after all he wrote the original book and worked on the screenplays. Uh, together they had a lot to draw upon, and they do a remarkable. Uh, job with it. Uh, uh, Lee Strasberg uh, says that Meyer Lansky called him up one night to tell him how much he enjoyed his portrayal of Meyer Lansky. Yep, and uh, that's, a, that, that's a very good point that both Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola were very willing to look at the lower classes and indeed the underclasses and tell the American story from that point of view precisely because they understood that really that's what people wanted. Everybody wanted to Americanize. Now some did it in an all right way, some did it in a sort of criminal way and later went legal. It worked for some and for others it turned tragic. Yes. And uh, this brings out something that of course we don't want to see in our entertainment except that then we are fascinated by it. We want happy ends but we know that there's a lot of dark side stuff happening. There's a lot of tragedy tragedy, even though we won't call it by that name. Uh, we, we now use the word anti-hero because we're scared of the word tragic hero. We don't want tragedy in our lives. But Coppola realized that, uh, and of course Mario Puzo as well, they worked together brilliantly. They both saw this very, very keenly, that the immigrant story can focus the American mind on tragedy. And as you put it, it works so well if you use Las Vegas as the symbol of America, because that's all gambling. And isn't it fair to ask, aren't all Americans gamblers? 
isn't it the case, right? You gotta take your chances and you gotta make your chances at that. Have you read my book? I mean, it's kind of amazing how much you know about what's in it. Uh, because, for example, I mean, a major theme of my book is who would think that the dark side of the American dream would be so popular? But I, you know, I talk about Godfather films, I talk about Breaking Bad, I talk about uh, zombie movies. In fact, uh, contrary to what we think, you know, Hollywood endings, we think everything has to end happily. Many of the great popular successes have been stories that deal with the dark side of the American dream and exactly deal with tragedy. One of the things I deal with both in the Godfather chapters, chapter and the Breaking Bad chapters, people don't know what to call Michael Corleone, they don't know what to call Walter White? Is he a hero? Is he an anti-hero? Is he a villain? And I point out, we have a term for that figure. It's tragic hero. Uh, that if you look at Shakespeare's tragic heroes, they're not particularly morally good. They're not particularly nice. Othello murders his wife. Hamlet murders half the people in Denmark. Uh, King Lear divides up and destroys his kingdom. I mean, some of the greatest literature ever written has dealt with characters who are neither simply heroes, nor simply villains, but are in fact tragic heroes. Uh, that's, I treat both Vito Corleone as a tragic hero and Michael Corleone as a tragic hero. And one of the great ideas in my book is, and, um, is that we have to apply some concepts from high culture to our understanding of popular culture. And I feel I have an advantage coming at all, at all of this from the perspective of Shakespeare, uh, that uh, Macbeth, for example, is a tyrant. He's a murderer. Yet he is the hero of the play. Uh, my chapter on Breaking Bad is called The Macbeth of Meth and uses <laughs> Macbeth as a way of analyzing Breaking Bad uh, and so uh, in, indeed I think popular culture is much more sophisticated than it's often given credit for and the audience is more uh, sophisticated. Shakespeare wrote for a popular audience and they were able to appreciate these great plays like Hamlet, Othello and Macbeth and I think their equivalent in our age would be the Godfather films in television something like Breaking Bad. People don't need happy endings always. They understand that life is complicated and sometimes uh, has unjust uh, and sad outcomes. But, uh, as, uh, you know, what, what Coppola does is what Shakespeare did to give depth to his characters, to make them full human beings, to let us see what, uh, what their good side is, what their virtues are. Uh, and then it is tragic that they're in situations that bring out the bad side side uh, in them. When you look at Michael Corleone's story, it, it has the uh, inevitability, the, the inexorable logic of a Shakespearean tragedy. After all, everything starts with the near murder of his father and the continuing threat of his father. He didn't set out to kill a policeman. Uh, he, that wasn't his goal in life, but there came a moment where, and you can see it unfold, where he's the only one who can get to McCloskey and Salazzo. Uh, and he makes a very... Uh, difficult decision, uh, as it turns out, an irreversible one, but I think an understandable uh, decision. And people sort of forget how he gets to where he is. He's uh, ultimately trapped by circumstances, as is, for example, Macbeth or any one of these great Shakespearean heroes.
yep, I agree. It is a pleasure to discover that we have these thoughts in common and that we can discover things from culture together. We, we have got to do this again when we find another subject. I also like to tell uh, colleges when I lecture about Aristotle's poetics. This is the manual for popular culture. This is what it was written for. Do not deceive yourself by moralistic expectations. People love horrifying stories because at some level they're aware that life doesn't really work out so well. And of course, when you're not on top of society, you're much more aware of how life doesn't always work out and how you can be pushed into terrifying decisions or terrifying circumstances. And they're very interested in that. The whole point is to re revive in our age understanding of this. A tragic hero, Aristotle tells us, is not a good guy. He's an impressive guy. He's amazing, attracts attention, but that's not because he's a good guy. That's not because he's morally serious or dependable. It's because he faces up to something very, very bad, very, very difficult. It doesn't work out for him, but everybody's eyes are on that guy. Of course they are. Of course the newspapers, the TV, of course they're going to feed us these stories because they know in truth we care about it yeah and so so are celebrities of course we know that they're gonna fall and we're really really interested in when that happens i love your characterization of aristotle's poetics as a manual for pop culture because that's exactly what it was uh tragedy was the popular culture of aristotle's day or the maybe the, the generation before, but he's reflecting on something that was a popular form, as I always like to point out to people, the word tragedy in Greek means goat song. Uh, yep. And once you realize that, you know, we think of this, of this as this super sophisticated, elegant, literary form tragedy. Once you call it goat song, you realize that it was something very popular in the day. Uh, we don't exactly know why it was called goat song. It may be because if you won the drama competition, you got a goat, it may be because the chorus dressed up as satyrs, half man, half goat. But Aristotle thought he was dealing with a very common form. Uh, Plato had condemned it uh, in the Republic, and Aristotle was trying to rehabilitate it and show that it could have uh, a positive effect and dealt with important subjects. Now, he doesn't think anything, uh, any tragedy is good. He's trying to articulate what makes a good tragedy, and it is a story that has a certain logic, a uh, beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, he doesn't like a story in which a thunderbolt just kills the hero. He wants to, the thing he was fascinated by was the connection between character and destiny, and how certain kinds of human beings end up uh, in these uh, 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 tragic situations. And it's exactly true that he, d he sees it's not a simple moral calculus. Uh, it's something uh, well beyond that. And I, uh, in my chapter on Breaking Bad, I use uh, 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 an epigraph from uh, the poet William Blake. Uh, uh, I, I care not whether a man be good or evil. I care only whether he's a wise man or a fool. And that's a very interesting form.
formulation which points away from simple calculations of morality so that, for example, with Walter White, everyone is arguing about the morality of the situation. It is, it's true, it's an important issue, but what really matters in his story is whether he's a great man, whether he's a great chemist, whether he can achieve something, and that has something to do with his intellect, uh, not his morality. And I think it's true in The Godfather that uh, in a certain uh, dramatic sense, we have to admire the Cor Corleones. We are actually rooting for them. It's one of the, the, the genius aspects of that film and of popular culture in general, of the gangster movie in particular, that it gets us to root for someone who we can't normally root for in everyday life where such a person is in fact dangerous uh, and has to be suppressed, uh, jailed, put out, of, put out of action. But we have the luxury in drama, as Aristotle understood, and in film and in television, uh, that these things are simply stories. People sometimes forget that, but uh, no one's actually getting killed uh, in these movies. And so we can think through and participate in the logic of a situation that's very much removed from everyday life, but teaches us something about everyday life. We're seeing, I think the point you made about Aristotle is exactly right, that he wants to see people pushed to the limit beyond the bounds of everyday life and see how they react. And very often it breaks them and the results are, as we say, tragic. But it teaches us something about humanity to see life in extreme situations. And that's the luxury that movies and television give us. Uh, to be able to sit back and see a story unfold that we would have to react to in a very different way if it was part of our everyday lives. Yeah popular culture is the necessary complement to our normal lives. We all want to be middle class, sort of successful, but even more than success, we want safety. But we all know there is a whole other side to life. There's a reason we lionize presidents, founder CEOs of corporations, great athletes, all sorts of other celebrities. They're people who step beyond safety and who take all sorts of risks. And some of them actual risks, that is to say, to do with life and limb. And we're fascinated by that because we know that there is a life beyond safety, that our own safety may be endangered, and that maybe in our hearts there are desires for other things that aren't safe. And we can explore that from beyond the screen. We know that these are stories. Nobody sees somebody die at the movies and rushes to call 911. We know they're not real. But... In another sense, they are real and maybe even more real than usual reality because even on the news, even in scandals, you never know what the whole story is. It just flashes into your consciousness and then flashes out. You never get the full story. Well, Coppola and Puzo can give you the full story. Everything becomes a sort of complete. You know the public things, the private things, the secrets, the suspicions, and you can sort of put them all together in a plot. And life and human action, they acquire completeness, wholeness. That's what Aristotle is so interested in. There is one single action in a tragedy that is complete. And that's what we need to understand. What would really follow? if suspicions, desires, fantasies, if you followed up on them. Yes, a good way of seeing it in The Godfather is to contrast the newspaper headlines with the reality of the movie. That is, we see within the film how the press 
has to reduce a very complicated story to an eight-word headline, where, you know, mobster, mobster slain in broad daylight. And and the genius of the film is to show us the, the as you say, the full human reality uh, behind that, and it's much more complex than can be compli- uh, captured in a newspaper uh, headline. Indeed, you sound like you've read my book already, because I focus on this aspect of the American dream, that in one sense, it's very much a middle-class idea, that the American dream is to uh, have a successful job and uh, have a family, a wife and 2.2 children, and live in the suburbs. and have. <laughs> two- yeah. yeah, I mean, in some ways, that is the American dream, and it's the way it's portrayed uh, in American movies and television in the 1950s, the world of Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best. And yet there's always been a strain in that uh, which pushes the envelope uh, and you want more. Uh, you don't just want to be a successful businessman. You want to be Henry Ford or John D. Rockefeller. You want to be the greatest businessman. Uh, and uh, a lot of the American dream has to do with safety and comfort and security and, again, living that nice suburban existence. But there's another side to it, which is, in a way, the true American dream, that you will be the greatest at whatever you do. And to do that, you have to take risks. And uh, gambling is a wonderful aspect of this. In some ways, gambling is un-American. In some ways, gambling is the most American thing there is. A lot of uh, American attitudes are that uh, are puritanical, that gambling is evil, that it's the great enemy of the American dream. On the other hand, so much of America is gambling. America was a, a great gamble itself. Uh, and so, uh, again, it's something that the Godfather deals with the issue of uh, what's the status uh, of gambling. And once you factor that in, you see that the American dream is not just safety and security. It's being courageous. It's taking risks. Uh, And one thing I try to bring out in the book is the inner contradiction uh, between uh, a kind of safe, secure, middle-class vision of the American dream and something that pushes beyond that. And and W.C. Fields films were so great about that because the central character in this film was always the con man. Uh, uh, and uh, so uh, the 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 inventor, uh, the guy with schemes, in uh, uh, it's a gift, for example. It's specifically the California dream of going out west and developing an orange grove. And so they're really, I mean, it's what makes America so fascinating is it alternates between a very simplistic middle-class view of the world and something that's much more heroic than that. Uh, and it is interesting how often the hero surfaces in American literature as a kind of bad boy. As, you know, the great Gadsby was a, a wonderful example of the, that. I wish I'd had a chapter on that. Uh, in in uh, all start with my analysis of Huckleberry Finn, where Twain essentially shows one con man uh, and sharpster after another on what was then the western frontier uh, of of America. And I saw the notion that if America was going to be the fresh start nation, it also would be the false 
start nation, that if you're going to have a nation where people would be free to become whatever they want to be and weren't tied to their roots, that the dark side of that was going to be that a lot of them were going to stray from the straight and narrow, from the law, and in some ways the entrepreneur and the con man are mixed up in the American imagination. So, you know, it can be Bernie Madoff or it can be Bill Gates. And sometimes you can't tell the difference. Uh, and that uh, is very much at the heart of Coppola's conception of the uh, uh, Godfather, where he wanted to use the uh, gangsters as images of the American businessmen. Uh, but there's a flip side to that, which is that in some ways uh, the uh, the gangsters uh, are elevated in the film by their business qualities, that in some ways they are entrepreneurial. They do see a need in the marketplace and fill it. And so the same time as you can say the film is lowering businessmen in our esteem, in some ways it's raising gangsters in our esteem. Norman Podhoritz wrote a very interesting essay about the Godfather's popularity. I'm not sure if I agree with him on this, but his argument is interesting. He said, uh, by the 1970s, uh, you could not show a businessman as a hero of a film. Uh, that the country, especially Hollywood, had turned anti-capitalist enough that you could no longer hold up the sort of Andrew Carnegie uh, success story. And he said the film worked, the Godfather film worked, because it was, in effect, showing a successful businessman. And the uh, people had been prevented from sympathizing with such a figure. And here, in this displaced form of the gangster, you could, you could sympathize with the guy who was a kind of rags to riches American success story. Now, again, I'm not sure if I agree with that, but it's a very interesting argument and something I yeah, do raise certain in certain my... qualifications, it's, it, it makes a bit of sense, in, right? I mean, the robber barons, as we are now calling them, they were aristocrats in their day. Yes. Right? Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, all these guys were aristocrats, and there came a lot of respectability with that. Even Henry Ford, they were morally admirable. They were dressing like European aristocrats, too. And, uh, of course, as does Don Vito. And then America democratized very, very seriously, especially the popular culture in the 60s. And all of a sudden, that was out. But on the other hand, you have this entire other version that is also uh, more relatable because at some level, these immigrants are fake aristocrats. At some level, they have to achieve it for themselves, like all Americans. And uh, that, that makes them popular heroes. But the popular hero is also a kind of aristocrat to begin with because his story gets all the attention. My story is not going to get any attention. There's a reason we're talking about them and not them about us, so to speak. Yeah. And this is just the American way. As, as we mentioned Mark Twain, like Tom Sawyer is the future of America, he's telling us. He's a con man. He can counterfeit his own Jesus Christ, death and resurrection. He can counterfeit justice. He can counterfeit filial piety with his aunt and loyal family bonds with Becky, the girlfriend. He can counterfeit it all and we'll love him because we worship success. And there's some truth to that. Yeah. Con men kind of have to con their way to the top. To some extent, you got to sell yourself. To sell any idea yeah yeah there is some truth to that and you can see why mark twain although he was resentful of this he also thought it was kind of funny that in america we want to moralize success when some of it 
And, of course, he was the greatest con man of them all. Uh, he's Samuel Clemens. He reinvents himself as Mark Twain, becomes in some ways the first full celebrity author, created a false persona, almost looked like Colonel Sanders, uh, uh, to popularize himself. And, yes, it's another theme that I deal with in the book is the paradox of America as a democracy longing for aristocracy. I mean, America is founded as a democracy. <clears throat> the Constitution specifically uh, <coughs> forbids grants of nobility. We weren't supposed to have kings and dukes and so on. What Mark Twain shows in Huckleberry Finn is we precisely become suckers for anyone pretending to be an aristocrat. And he has this false king and a false duke uh, in the book. Uh, and then it's very interesting how that comes back in The Godfather, <laughs> where suddenly you have Don Fanucci and Don Corleone, uh, that in some ways it shows this American longing for aristocracy. <laughs> yes, that is very much true. And uh, most of the time it's not really obvious what is the difference between the fake aristocrats of Huckleberry Finn and the fake aristocrats we see now in Britain who really are just for show. Absolutely. But Americans still I mean, love them. Indeed, America's producing their own princesses right now by marrying them to the British. And, of course, the respectable Americans used to do this. Some guy from Arizona married his daughter to uh, Winston Churchill's father, and that's why we had Winston Churchill. <laughs> it's uh, it's an old American idea. You can buy respectability, you can buy glamour, you can buy all this polish. But if you look at how the success was made, we become way more populist all of a sudden. We, be, we come down a few social steps and we and that's why with the godfather it's more tolerable and indeed in many ways admirable because he starts among the people he's an achiever yeah well you know aristocracy in greek means rule of the best uh, in some ways, it's hard to argue with that, except that these people that call themselves aristocrats aren't really the best. Uh, but that's something that Twain's uh, very aware of, and again, comes back in the uh, in the Godfather films. Democracy creates, a, puts itself in a real bind. Uh, that in some ways, you know, it wants all people to be equal, but that would really cut off a lot of human aspiration, because. Again, in some ways, the American dream is not just to be successful, but to be the best. And that then surfaces in all sorts of areas, for example, athletics, uh, and it's where we still have uh, the notion of aristocracy. Babe Ruth was the sultan of SWAT, and one athlete after another has been called the king of this or, or, or the king of that, and we see it in our uh, uh, in our entertainment, Count Basie, Duke Ellington. Uh, we bring back these aristocratic titles, even though they're forbidden in the Constitution, because we it's part of uh, human beings to, to want to be the best, uh, and we can, ad, 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 we can admire that and respond to that. That's the point that Walter White makes, that he became a meth manufacturer, but he was the best. 
He, yep. he can claim he's the best at it. And, you know, essentially that's the Corleones. They, they, they're the best uh, at bootlegging uh, and, and so on. Uh, and so uh, it's one of the things I bring out in the book. There's a kind of internal contradiction to the American dream uh, that Americans are not supposed to be to want to be better than any other American. And yet, in a sense, that's what's impelling this ambition and this striving. And in many ways, you know, it's, it's good that Henry Ford wanted to be the best automobile manufacturer. A lot of people who uh, got cars because he made the Model T, you know, they had something to be grateful for, uh, even though he did some awful things uh, in his in his life. And that that's what becomes tragic about this. Fundamentally, for me, a tragedy is a story about uh, someone uh, who is excellent in some ways, uh, but destructive in others. I like to put it that the fundamental fact of tragedy is that human excellence and moral excellence are not the same thing. That moral excellence exactly. is one form of human excellence, but it isn't every form of human excellence. And the tragic fact that Shakespeare dwells with uh, on again and again, and that I think you see in Breaking Bad, you see in The Godfather, is that things that you can really admire uh, and that at the heart of certain activities we admire, they can have some terrible consequences in, in certain circumstances, and that's what makes it tragic. And I think, again, Aristotle understood that. Yep. In America, we always want to do well, but we always want to do good. Ideally, you do well by doing good, but in reality, we know that doing good and doing well are very different things. And to some extent, we also know that the, the good is itself complicated, that what's good for me and what I am good at doing are often very different things. If you do, you know, Steve Jobs is admired because he did certain things well, but nobody thinks he was a good father as well. Nobody thinks he was a good person. Or to some extent, we lie and say, oh, yeah, he must have been a great guy. No, he was a great CEO. He yeah. was not a good man. And that's what people go to. That's Nobody goes to Silicon Valley to have a simple job, a normal life, and so forth. They go there to become Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or Steve, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos or somebody like Peter Thiel. That's what their ambition is. They want to rise to the top. And that doesn't mean leading a good life exactly. It just means being the best at something and having America love you for it. It's a lot of it is finally the country will accept you. Finally, you will fully Americanize. People will love you for it. Yeah. Now, I'd like to make the point that we have such false expectations. I mean, to take it, sports often crystallizes these points. Uh, on Sunday, we're cheering a lineman for killing the opposition quarterback. We're literally cheering, kill the quarterback. And the next morning, a story uh, uh, surfaces that the same guy punched his wife. Now, that's terrible. It's awful. But is it so surprising uh, that someone who is so violent at the core of his professional life might manifest some violence in domestic life. By the way, this is the story of Othello. 
as Shakespeare portrays it. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's very American to want it all and to think all forms of human excellence are compatible, and I wish they were. But it's a tragic fact of life that they're not, and I think that's what makes Shakespeare so great and what makes Coppola and Crusoe so great in the Godfather films or Vince Gilligan in Breaking Bad, that they were willing to face up to the fact that the world isn't so simple as we would like it to be, uh, and what what we often admire someone for transposed into other circumstances can have very dangerous and tragic effects. And one of the things that Sh one of Shakespeare's great subjects was military generals and what happens to them in private life. It's the story of Othello. It's the story of Coriolanus. Story of Mark Antony. Story of Richard the Third. Shakespeare was fascinated by the way that the things that we can admire in a soldier do not translate that easily into domestic life and in a way the, uh, in The Godfather, the hope of Vito's generation is to create this firewall between business and family. And, you know, we don't talk about business at the dinner table. Uh, uh, the family are uh, uh, exempt. You don't go after civilians. And uh, what, happened, what happens already in Godfather 1 is that firewall breaks down. And Coppola understands that it isn't that easy to separate uh, things out, and especially in America. Uh, and so we see how, uh, how the violence in the criminal activity spills over into the domestic world, and that's what's so horrible about what happens with Michael when he, when he hits uh, Kay and then ultimately when he has uh, Fredo killed. That's the thing that most... Uh, turns Michael against himself. That's the thing he regards as un un unforgiving. And again, it would be a dream to think that all our aspects of life are, are compatible, but I think, uh, you know, one thing I deal with in this book, and I think is especially true in the Godfather films, is to see that human life uh, is, is much more complicated than we, we normally think. And, and they force us to ask questions that we don't normally ask, and again, I think the reason is that we're dealing with a fictional world, uh, and we we can afford to sit back and suspend judgment and think through what we're seeing, rather than you know when you counter these sort of things in in real life, you condemn them, you want to see them punished, and that's perfectly understandable. But there's still, uh, if you want to understand human life, and not just deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. You need something like a, the Godfather films. They, they are so important because they raise so many of these issues. Yeah, as you put it, the American drama is life and work, and in what ways they go together, we all hope they do, and in all the ways in which we actually know, no, they don't. At the beginning of The Godfather and throughout most of the first movie, you see that the women are protected from everything, but also constrained to the house, to the kitchen, but then there's this whole other America out there, modern American women like Kay. Uh, Michael Corleone was brought up in the Italian part of America, but he goes for this blonde Protestant girl, and uh, it's a college thing, she speaks her own mind, that's very attractive. But then it turns out that he can't deal with the fact that she's so independent. Exactly. Just like she's attracted to this immigrant guy, he comes from the lower classes, there's danger to him, but he's a manly man. 
But then it turns out she can't deal with so much manliness. So even if it weren't a tragedy, the conflict is baked in, given their choices. And it is an all-American conflict, just like life and work. You don't yeah. need to have your work be killing. You could just be a very successful lawyer, doctor, tech entrepreneur, whatever. There's just not going to be time to have a family. You can never be a good father. Yeah. And that's uh, something that's supposed to teach us. We want all the things we have in our sophisticated society, but there's a price to pay. And whoever is willing to pay that price will pay it for the rest of us as well, so to speak. Their suffering to some extent is American suffering. We're all gamblers, but we're most of us just in Vegas for a weekend. What if Vegas is your life? Yes, that's a good way of putting it. And, you know, the novel is more explicit on this uh, issue that in the novel it's explicit that Michael wants his children to be raised Protestant. And it's one reason he marries Kay, because he thinks they won't be American if they're not Protestant. So it would be part of the Americanization is clear in the novel that it's marrying a Protestant. Uh, and uh, that's hinted at in the film, but it's interesting that it's more clearly developed there. And again, it occurs to me their marriage is like Desdemona and Othello. Uh, exactly. Othello wants. And he is a war hero. Yeah. Yes, he is a war hero. That's a good point. She's attracted to the. Uh, 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 as Othello says, she loved me for the dangers I faced. I loved her that she did pity them. And for Michael, uh, marrying Kate is being accepted fully into American society, just as marrying, you know, Othello's an immigrant. Marrying Desdemona would integrate him fully into Venetian society. But uh, Desdemona wants to escape Venetian society. She sees hemmed in. Uh, she lives under constraints. She sees Othello as her way out of Venice and follows him to Cyprus as soon as, soon as he can. And yeah, Kate's, Kate's rebelling against her family. Uh, yes, and the very much so. uh, to to marry this Italian gangster, uh, and he's trying to get American acceptability. They really are marrying at cross purposes, and indeed their marriage would have failed uh, even under less uh, of a strain than develops in the film. Again, I I work by finding these parallels between Shakespeare and popular culture, and not you know just any works popular culture, but really the great works. Uh, again, I, I I feel that the Godfather films are Shakespearean in their scope and in their depth, uh, and I really yep. admire them for that reason. And to add another comparison, Michael also tells her his war story, the horror stories of the mafia of his family. He assures her that that's not me, but that's part of the attraction there. That's part of what keeps her on coming. You're here at the wedding in my family. Look at that guy. That guy's a monster. Yes, and then of wow. course when Frank Sinatra she doesn't run away. Yeah, yeah. When Frank Sinatra shows up, it's a world of glamour she's never been exposed to. She's from a New England small town, and suddenly she's at a wedding, and Johnny Fontaine shows up. Uh, she's clearly attracted to that. Michael, you didn't tell me you knew Johnny Fontaine. Uh, so it is, uh, yeah, I have a sense of new essay here. I wish I'd thought of this in time to incorporate in the book. You've been very helpful to me. <laughs> Sir, it is a pleasure talking. It's great to see that we, we run in our minds on parallel tracks on this, and we work very well together. I am pleased. 
it's uh, it's true that you need to see in popular culture these Shakespearean strains because they they start focusing things very very well. In some ways, Michael Corleone is living the American drama. It's his particular character is revealed compared to others like his wife, but also he reveals certain some things about the nation and this issue of. Are we bringing gangsters up or are we bringing businessmen down? Of course, as you said, we do both. And again, to go back to Mark Twain, that's the Connecticut Yankee. He takes all these European knights for all their nobility and turns them into ad men, into salesmen, into modern Americans in short. Yes, that means that instead of a noble emblem and a legend, you're going to have, you know, branding. But on the other hand, it also means that businessmen at some level have to be crusader knights or something like that. Yes, it's a very interesting example because Twain went into that book to champion America against Britain. And it had a lot to do with the fact that as an American author, he resented the success of British authors and so on. And the book was uh, meant to uh, supply a, a defense of democracy against aristocracy. But as the book progressed, he worked on it, this dark side comes out where exactly as you say, the Yankee ends up debasing aristocracy and Twain starts to admire King Arthur for his nobility, for his fearlessness, for his chivalry. And by the end of the book, the the Yankee uh, has invented uh, World War One uh, warfare. He's he's entrenched himself. He's using automatic weapons to mow down these poor knights on horseback. And you begin to sense that Twain has his doubts. America represents modernity and technology and their superiority, but he's worried about what the effect of that technology will be. And the book has a very dark end. Uh, in that yep. sense. Children's soldiers in the war of science. And that shows you that he, he, he was very much aware that you got to keep a check on commerce and technology and that check had better be manliness or honor because otherwise things are going to get very, very crazy and scientists are as capable as, of turning tragic heroes, even the all-American practical scientist, the engineer, he too has it in him to turn tragic hero. Like Twain shows you, why did he end up in the past? Well, he was at the fair and instead of having fun, he got into a fight. Right? He got his clock cleaned. That's why he ended up in the past. He was violent to begin with, but he never saw it in himself. He never saw how aggressive he actually was. Yes, and he's working for a gun company. Uh, so it's, it's yep. perfect in that sense. Uh, yeah, that's again, I begin my book with Mark Twain because I think he sets out a lot of these paradoxes and complexities about uh, the American destiny. He certainly supported it. And again, I, I like the fact in, uh, you know, the, in some ways the, the American dream is the self-made man. And uh, Twain's an example of that. Fields was an example. Of that Coppola is an example of that, uh, and someone's Vince Gilligan as well. That uh, uh, that uh, uh, these are people who have very humble beginnings and have become uh, the giants of their field, been very successful, and in some cases with some complications. Uh, in that, it's interesting that both uh, Twain and Coppola. 
experienced huge financial reversals and almost lost everything they uh, they 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 made. Uh, so uh, again, I do want to stress that I I think the American dream is not an illusion. Many people think it's just a fake idea used to placate the masses, but uh, on the whole, America's been a pretty fulfilling place for a lot of people, and especially immigrants from around the world have been very successful uh, here, and I don't think we should forget that. On the other hand, what's important about the works I discuss is they do remind us that there is a dark side to the American dream, and that many of these uh, stories can turn out tragically precisely because of an underlying incompatibility of the values uh, that come into conflict when you press things to their limits. And again, that's the point about a hero. Uh, a hero presses things to the limits and reveals something about humanity. It's like, you know, you can't uh, find out how strong a piece of steel is till you subject it to pressure and see when it breaks. And then you yep. know something about it, uh, but let's not forget it may take a lot of pressure to break it. Uh, and uh, yep. I, I find it, I mean, I really admire popular culture. It was really, you know, I've always loved movies and television, and I went off in this fancy English department type stuff writing about Shakespeare. And at some point I circled back and realized that a lot of the concepts I'd been developing and studying Shakespeare were quite applicable to the best of movies uh, and television. I think it's really helped me uh, to come at this material uh, from a different perspective. Again, I, I've uh, both my Godfather chapter and my Breaking Bad chapter, I actually feel that a lot of people who talk about popular culture, they just don't even remember this concept of tragic hero. The, the, you find them, you know, asking themselves, you know, how can Michael Corleone be a hero? He's done these terrible things. Or how can Walter White be a hero? He's done these terrible things. Well, I say, you know, Othello, Macbeth, they've done terrible things. Oedipus does terrible things. Uh, but the, 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 we have this category of tragic hero precisely to deal with the complexity of this kind of situation where there's someone we can admire for certain qualities and someone who triumphs in certain ways, and yet the story works out disastrously, unhappily, we say tragically. Uh, and uh, I, I kind of, I, I, uh, I first came upon this when I was uh, writing about John Ford's movie, The Searchers. And there are so yes. many people who want to call Ethan a villain. And he's clearly the hero of the film. He's played by John Wayne. But he does some yep. terrible things. But that's the point. Uh, when you're at the frontier between civilization and barbarism, and when you've been essentially formed by the Civil War, uh, you're not going to be Mr. Nice Guy. But when you know, people miss Uncle Ethan when he's not there, uh, yep. when the warriors the show up, he can and... save the family, but yeah. he cannot be part of it. Exactly. That is the tragic contradiction. Yes, yes. and uh, of course, that's a great example. Our every man hero 
John Wayne from Stagecoach. John Ford was always building up to this, and he ended up with those two great portrayals in The Searchers and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, where he plays tragic heroes. These are great, admirable men, larger than life and bigger than we can afford to have in our society now. And there's a reason we don't want them in our society now. Just look at their lives and what they did. They were great, but too dangerous, too great for America in certain ways. And unfortunately, our sophisticated critics aren't really at all sophisticated. They can't see that it's not white hats and black hats. It's what was like. What was it like before America, and what's it like now? What was it like when freedom made for savagery and greatness, and what's it like now when we have a middle condition in between them? Yes. Yeah. My essay on the searchers compares it uh, to the Oresteia by Aeschylus, and it is, you know, what does it take to create the city when it's surrounded by barbarism? It takes a very violent uh, human being and one who is dangerous. But you, you want that kind of person when you're faced with a threat. But then, uh, you know, it's uh, it's the uh, Jimmy Stewart character. The man who shot liver—he's the guy who works in peacetime, uh, and there's this tremendous sense of diminishment uh, in the in the again it's the middle class world. You know, uh, uh, what's his name? His name is Ransom, I think. In the, the, anyway, he 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 goes by the law books, and that's fine, but not when you're dealing with liberty balance. Then it takes yes, a gun. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I one thing I have discovered, uh, in the, you know, that many of the American genres uh, are united by just this point: the western, the gangster story, uh, the horror story, uh, particularly in the form of the zombie story. Uh, that uh, uh, a lot of our genres are popular precisely because they step out of the middle-class world of security. I mean, again, so much of our, uh, so many of our genres, romantic comedy and so on, uh, occur within a very uh, narrow range of middle-class society, uh, which uh, is protected and unthreatened. uh, But a lot of uh, our, what are often thought of as the most popular genres, the lowest genres like the Western, the horror story, I find great strength in them and sometimes profundity in them because they really they recur to the fundamental choices that have to be made before you have middle class society. I like to think of them as thought experiments uh, so that the Western harks back to a time before civil society was formed. The zombie narrative looks ahead to a time when civil society would be dissolved. Uh, And they make us ask the fundamental questions uh, afresh. Do we need civil society? I think we do, uh, and generally these works teach that lesson, but at least they show you that a choice was made and that we have had to reject certain human possibilities in order to achieve the peace and security of of, of civil society. And so, again, it doesn't mean that uh, I wouldn't want to live without civil society. I don't want to live in a zombie apocalypse or the American Wild West. I figure I would personally 
personally wouldn't last 10 minutes in such a world. But it's, I really do think these, uh, these kinds of genres, uh, the gangster movies, another one where uh, they serve the function of showing us the alternatives that we have rejected and, and we've probably wisely rejected them or prudently rejected them. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it's useful to be reminded of what the choices were and what the alternates, alternatives were and that there have been many moments in human history uh, where human beings made other choices and where other aspects of human nature were allowed to develop and flourish. It's one reason I, I, I love ancient Greek literature, because it reminds us of this kind of heroic world. I, I got really interested in Icelandic sagas two years ago when I went to Iceland, and they too are stories of characters like Ethan uh, in The Searchers, this, the great hero Grettir, Grettir the Strong, is wonderful in fighting trolls and other monsters, but he just can't get along with ordinary people at home. Uh, and when you try to get him to do what we would call a nine-to-five job, when you just try to get him to work the farm, he goes berserk. And berserk is an old Norse word, uh, in fact. Yep. Uh, and so it's really interesting how this strain actually runs through uh, our literature. I'm very glad that I've studied uh, literature from the ancient world to the present. I think it does give me a good perspective on contemporary pop culture, and I've, I'm fascinated. Uh, you know, our superheroes are a reflection of just this issue. Uh, the superhero has an excellence. Uh, you know, uh, X-ray vision, or he's an elastic man, or uh, he can jump, he's Superman, and uh, uh, and yet the superhero always has his Achilles heel. It's very interesting how this uh, uh, reacts back to Achilles. That the superhero has some kind of amazing virtue, some kind of uh, super excellence, but always usually some kind of weakness, and of course he or she is dangerous. Uh, yes. Uh, and it, 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 it's interesting to see to me that, uh, you know, we seem very remote from the ancient Greeks and their gods and their heroes like Hercules, but in a way our culture has recreated them, and there's a certain democratic aspect to it. Uh, the ancient heroes were heroes by birth. Uh, typically, they had one of the parents was a god, and it was in that sense a very aristocratic notion that your lineage determined it. That would not work uh, in modern democracy, so our superheroes are usually the product of an accident. Exposure to nuclear radiation. The yeah, bite it's often of the, science that gives them their power. Yeah, it's science, so it's not something hereditary and aristocratic. And even Superman, he's only super because he's been transposed to another planet. Back uh, and Krypton. Yeah, that's also a scientific fact that's supposed to explain things, right? Yeah. Well, the radiation of this star is different. Yeah, uh, and in general, in Krypton, he would have been ordinary. 
but it's only the mm-hmm. transposition. So it's very interesting. I'm fascinated by the way our superheroes are a kind of compromise between aristocracy and democracy. They are aristocrats for a democratic world, and they often have this same problematic uh, that, uh, uh, you know, the Incredible Hulk is a perfect example of this. You admire him sheerly for his strength. And there's no moral character to that strength. Again, he's very much like this character, Grettir, in Icelandic uh, sagas. And he's normally just an ordinary human being, and then his rage brings out uh, the strength. And that's very similar to so many of these, even Shakespearean heroes, uh, uh, like Coriolanus or Othello. It's their rage that makes it destructive, but it goes along with their heroic and especially their characters, soldiers. So again, I try to see a continuity between popular culture and high culture and how they, the, the, they in many ways are illustrating the same principles, just you do want to understand that the audience in 20th century, 21st century America for films and television are different from the audience for Greek tragedy in the 5th century BC in Athens. Yeah. People don't want to see this for various prejudices, but the truth is we have come back to Greece. We do want heroes like they did. We do want endless stories episodic of their adventures because these are the only memorable characters there are. We are as fascinated with manly men as they were for the same reason. They are memorable. What they do is shocking, tremendous, not good, not necessarily helpful. But it is inspiring, and you always see with them, I would add another genre, the noir and the detective picture. There you see what happens if you want to be a manly man, to be a man in full. It's not going to work out well, but it is impossible to avert your eyes. Yeah, and of course it creates this tension with the women in the stories who both want a manly man and are afraid of the consequences. And of course that's at the center of The Godfather right at the opening when uh, uh, Vito slaps around Johnny Fontaine, you know, what should I do? Be a man. Uh, Yep. And it's so much of Vito being a man. He was a child and afraid and dependent and Everything he does is to become a man who can stand on his own, who doesn't need to go cry, who doesn't need to go seek help from others. He is determined to be a man. Uh, and there's something very admirable about that in terms of the film. I, th- I think we're, it's something we respond to, and Brando is so good at conveying uh, uh, that sense of manliness. And, he, and you know, ultimately, it, it becomes corrupted in Michael, where his sense, you know, uh, I forget is the, which character. Uh, it's one of the women that says, well, what do you want to do, kill everybody? Uh, and mm-hmm. you see how that devolves into something uh, frightening. But the, the Godfather is a lot about manliness. Uh, and that's the old Sicilian code is one of manliness, which gets distorted in the modern world uh, and has, again, horrifying consequences. But it's still, uh, we see sense the uh, the uh, the admiration of that but my whole uh, break bad essay is about this issue of uh, manliness and what's now called toxic masculinity I, I show that in some ways 
manliness gets out of control when it is simply branded and rejected as toxic masculinity uh, in that, that, that story. And there's a lot of continuity with The Godfather uh, there. That's quite self-conscious. The TV series uh, constantly refers to The Godfather. It's one thing I love about The Godfather films is they have emerged uh, as playing the role within popular culture that Shakespeare's plays uh, played within his culture. You know, we were fascinated, or we, we scholars are fascinated by the way Shakespeare draws upon earlier drama. People tend to underestimate uh, the way that he became uh, the reference point for his successes, so that Hamlet was endlessly imitated uh, by later uh, dramatists. Uh, uh, writing uh, revenge tragedies, uh, and uh, people, you know, Shakespeare was so popular, most successful dramatist of his day, that people started imitating uh, him, and he raised the game uh, for all these other dramatists, and I feel the Godfathers had that kind of uh, vivifying effect in popular culture that it really uh, has inspired uh, a number of filmmakers and uh, television creators uh, it in some ways opened up whole new pathways again that's why I think of it as uh, you know again I personally think of these two as the greatest films uh, of all time and don't ever ask me to say whether I like one or two better because I have no answer to that yeah they work together seamlessly they're perfectly put together precisely to bring this out and at some point it has to dawn that uh, Corleone means Lionheart it's about manliness. It's, it's like Richard Cordelion. It's about being lion-hearted and the, to be a man in the city necessarily causes tragedy. That is the lesson that we are in certain ways eager to learn now. What Breaking Bad shows is that in a society that's all decency, morality, what we call the gender-neutral society or politically correct, a man still wants to be feared, he wants to be ter terrific, he wants to terrorize other people instead of he himself being afraid of them. I am the danger. Exactly. And it, people can be confused or pretend that it's not there, but it is there, and our imagination is turning again towards manliness and to one image of military aristocracy after another, whether it's the whether it's Star Wars or Marvel superheroes or anything else again and again and and of course even uh, you know that's what Walking Dead reveals for a different audience too again Marshall absolutely uh, and again it was very uh, I write on that in the new book in the in the first season one result of the zombie apocalypse was to restore men and women to more traditional roles, uh, where the women were becoming domestic and doing the laundry, and the men were out hunter-gatherers and defending the tribe. Uh, and it's actually self-consciously uh, worked out that way in some of the early dialogue. And I think it's been one of the reasons for the success of the show is that it, uh, the zombie apocalypse reminds us of why we had the traditional world. Uh, uh, and indeed, it, uh, uh, it's filled with images of masculinity, some of which are 
horrifying. I mean, these characters, these villains, especially Negan. Uh, but on the other hand, the reason why Rick Grimes is such a hero uh, is that he is manly in the traditional sense. And, of course, the recuper- I talk about the recuperation of the redneck in the series where Daryl, who would normally be uh, dumped on uh, yes. in Hollywood productions, I mean, I, I see it as kind of the, re- the-, the rewriting of Deliverance. Uh, <laughs> The, the southern redneck is now the hero and the protector <laughs> yes. figure because he, he knows how to stand on its own. And to its credit, the show has made a big point about giving women manliness in it and not seeing it as a, uh, a sheer product of gender. Uh, but in, uh, Andrea and Carol, uh, uh, you know, a number of the women have taken on the role of protector, they've learned how to use guns, for example. It, uh, uh, again, I, there's a lot of pushback uh, in the entertainment industry to the prevalent uh, images that, I mean, it, you know, it's incredible what happened to the American father in American popular culture. If you go back to Ward Cleaver or Jim Anderson in the 50s and see Homer Simpson but in general, the kind of bumbling uh, fathers that you see uh, in American sitcoms, uh, what used to be a sight of manliness, uh, um, basically the father seen as an overgrown child. Uh, and there's a lot of pushback. To the- yep. And he always has to apologize yeah, to his children. Yeah. And it's very interesting to see. I think the you know the, the, again the story of Rick Grimes and his son Carl. It was the father once again as a role model for the son, and a role model in manliness. Uh, uh, so yeah, I have a, a lot of fun with this in my chapter on uh, uh, on The Walking Dead. Uh, Again, I find it so fascinating that uh, how how much there is in American popular culture, and I uh, I think you know academics are always the last to figure these out these things out. But even academics have come around <laughs> to understanding this. I mean, the general public understood that the motion picture was the artistic form of the 20th century long before academics did. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, and now we're seeing some, something similar uh, with television that uh, people are beginning to understand that a lot of the best serious writing today is being done uh, for television. And it's just, you know, these these forms, uh, uh, let's face it, they are financially successful and then they attract talent. Shakespeare wrote for the theater because it was the fast fast track of his day. A lot of money to be made in it, uh, and that attracts talent. And now it happened with movie, movies, it's, and, and, and it's, it's now happening with television, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Indeed, new... if that's, that's, a, that's supposed to teach people. If you think you have something to say, find out in what way people are willing to listen and do that. Yes, I, I'm convinced that if Shakespeare were starting today, he'd go into television. 
he'd started maybe 50 years ago, he would have gone to movies. Uh, 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 what's particularly interesting about television is it is a writer's medium, uh, less so than you know, movies are more a director's medium. And so in television, you get a chance to see what you actually write brought up to the screen, whereas in movies, there are so many rewrites and directors make the decision. Nevertheless, there are still great movies being made. These are great media. Yep. I mean, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, the famous Rembrandt painting, Aristotle contemplating the bust of Homer. I would like to see Aristotle contemplating a print of the Godfather. I mean, I think he would have been extraordinarily impressed with the medium. Yes. Uh, I would have been thrown off at first and would have wondered about, you know, what is it? But uh, we forget how powerful these media are as a way of communicating. And again, most of the stuff may be trash, but that's true. I always point out there were evidently about a thousand Greek tragedies written in that fifth century in Athens, of which 33 have survived. And for various reasons, we can believe those are the 33 best. Maybe not exactly the 33 best, but they were preserved because they were the good stuff. And nobody says that Agathon was a greater playwright than Aeschylus. Uh, all the people at the time, including Aristotle, you know, single out as the best uh, dramatists, Euripides, Aeschylus, and Sophocles, the three who survived. Uh, and, you know, tragedy was a very powerful medium when it came along. Suddenly you weren't just reciting the story, just narrating it. You were having people act it out, and that was a revelation. And you included music, and you included dancing, and people just loved the medium. And then along came Aeschylus and elevated it to a whole new level by showing you could use uh, this new goat song form uh, to dramatize stories of a Homeric uh, stature. And so, you know, again, when movies came along, people would sit in the theater and just watch a train pull into a movie station. That was a big hit for the Lumiere brothers. Uh, and then people said, well, maybe you could have a story. <laughs> and, you know, within 20 years, you had D.W. Griffith. Yes. It's kind of amazing how quickly true artists were uh, attracted to the medium. It's taken a little longer with television, but I think we're there uh, uh, now. So I, uh, yeah, I, uh, one of the things I uh, really dislike in some academic critics is their notion that if something's popular, it's got to be bad. Yep. Just not that true. That has been a long-standing prejudice, but as we see with the advance of democracy through society, we have gotten back to the age of the tragedians, and we are, in fact, recovering tragedy not perhaps at the level of Sophocles, but maybe we're getting there. Certainly we're doing much better than has been done in a very long time. And all these things, the recovery of tragedy, the recovery of manliness, these fantasies of mythological heroes and the creation of mythologies, these are not accidentally together. We look way too much like ancient Greece did to think it's an accident. <laughs> And just like it only took Aeschylus to realize, oh yeah, this should be a story about who we are. Let's talk about Athens. Let's talk about our politics. Let's talk about our war with the Persians. So also with our own modern storytelling, it's about who we are and about the story of America. Yeah, you're going to like my new book. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, sir. It has been a, a delight to run together and then to try to weave together these thoughts. 
and uh, let's let's do this again soon. Okay, I'm I'm I learned so much from this conversation uh, uh, that yeah, I would be happy to talk to you again anytime. Thanks a lot, sir. Thank you for your time, and we'll talk again soon. All the best. Okay, thank you for doing the show.